Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is where we are today. You can open your Bibles there. It's going to be on the screen. It made me delighted to hear how uncomfortable I made Rachel to have to preach from Ecclesiastes um, because she has done that to me, uh, as, as she mentioned, and, but now I have to pay the piper and also preach from Ecclesiastes, from a part that is particularly pretty depressing, uh, as you'll see very quickly. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word even when it sounds like this. And God, we pray that you would help us to hear the sounds of good news. God, let us be disturbed by what ought to be disturbing, and let us be comforted by you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that these are your words, and they carry your own power. We ask that you would breathe them into our own hearts and minds. Amen. Capitalism is not a Christian system. Let me just start there. <clears throat> this is not an economics lecture, but let me talk about economics for a second. Capitalism is not from the Bible. It's not there. Um, I can at least tell you that part with confidence. The Bible is kind of my area of expertise to a degree. Capitalism is not given to us from the Bible. It's a system of free market economics, and it's good at some things, and it's bad at some things. It's really good at finding inefficiencies. It's really good at finding the places where things are not running quite as smoothly as they could, and incentivizing people to eliminate those inefficiencies so that they can personally profit from it. And theoretically, the thing that they are doing, the service that they are providing, is so desirable for others that people are willing to pay that person in order to get what they've provided. And it's really good at finding these places of inefficiency. So, for example, I would like a chicken sandwich. That is almost always true. <laughs> I do not want to butcher a chicken. I do not want to pluck it, 
boil it before that. I don't want to, to heat up oil in my kitchen, fry it, and I don't want to try to figure out the proper blend of spices and flour, and I don't want to go through all of that work in my own house smelling like chicken forever because I'm just going to want another one tomorrow. However, Chick-fil-A exists. Chick-fil-A has found the ability to take this process and say, I will do it for you. I will do it in a delicious fashion. I will do it quickly. You will give us a set price. And I say, please take my money. That is what capitalism is good at doing. It, it, it enables people to find places where there's inefficiency. It's really hard to make a chicken sandwich. And it enables other people to say, I will, I will earn an income off of the difficulty of, of that thing. It really works. It's really smart. And capitalism is also really bad at stopping itself. Because it will just, it, it is a machine. It will continue to work and work and work to the extent that it will become maximally efficient without any care for ethics and virtue. When you see the existence of slavery in our country, that is not an anomaly of capitalism. That is capitalism completely unrestrained. What is the chief inefficiency of making anything? You have to pay people to do it. What if you just didn't pay them and you just treated them like property? That is capitalism working. So it's, it's good at some things, it's bad at some things. Now, I'm not a socialist. I'm not a communist. Because socialism is a good at things and it's bad at things. Socialism is going to step in and it's going to say in a mixed economy at best or a socialistic economy, well, what if we just stop capitalism from working and we let the, the government, we give some organization power to put walls up and we try to distribute the benefits of capitalism without some of the costs there, which is a great theory, except that when people get power, things become, one, less efficient, because it's not capitalism, and two, People have power, which tends to be historically a problem. Because inevitably, when people in a socialist or, or beyond that communist system have power, they tend to do the thing that every other human does, which is, I will now use this power for my particular good. What happens as a result of capitalism? What happens as a result of socialism and communism? Different ways to get there. What Ecclesiastes is going to tell us is the same outcome. The poor are oppressed. That's what happens. An efficiently running economy produces oppression. An effective economy produces oppression. And you can say, well, theoretically, that is not true for this and that reason. Prove your theory. You cannot. There is no example of any economy anywhere in history that has not produced the kind of oppression that the author of Ecclesiastes is observing. Your, your theories are worth talking about. Meanwhile, we live in a non-theoretical world. This is not an economics lesson. This is a discussion of sin. Let me tell you how this works 
in our own particular location. I send my kids to public school. We, we live close. We, it's a dual language program. We send our kids there. Many of you do not send your kids to public school. When your kid does not go to my school or any other school, my kid's school get less, gets less money. So everybody who opts out of the system, do homeschool, private school, whatever, you take money out of my kid's school. The estimate from North Carolina in 2021 was that some systems, the total bill of, of people, uh, of money lost due to loss of enrollment was about $132 million. That's in one particular portion of a school system. I don't know if you've heard, but public school systems were never really famous for being really well resourced. So the loss of $132 million, quite significant. Is going to private school bad? No. Am I telling you not to homeschool? Am I telling you not to send your kids to private school? I'm not. I went to private school. First through eighth grade. Loved it. Am I telling you not to homeschool? I am not. This is the reality. This is the system. This is the way of the world. And the challenge of our lives, the particular place that we live in, the particular time and culture we live in, is it's incredibly easy to distract yourself and deceive yourself and to see nothing of this. We live in a, in a part of the world, in a, in a time in history, where it has never been easier to insulate yourself and isolate yourself away from the oppression that exists in the world. If you live in suburban America, if you are moderately middle class, if you are upper lower class and above in America, you can live a life that is totally ignorant to the, the oppression of the world, much of which is right around you. The things that we drive on the landscaping in our yards, the products that we wear, have signs of that oppression all over it. And we are largely blind to it. This is a system full of, suffused by, the evidences and signs of oppression. And the, and the speaker in Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is saying, there is nothing to be done about this. It is better that these people in the sweatshops, these people on the bottom end of the period, the, the people who are trying to climb across borders, the people who are, are working like my grandmother did when she came from Cuba, 25 cents an hour to scrape paint off walls. It'd be better if they were dead. The best people are the people who have never been born. That's what he says. And if you read that text in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and say, man, that seems really extreme, then you are not paying attention to the world. You and I live in incredible comfort and power. 
And this is what the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes were meant to see as a, as a king who has himself loads of power just like us. This is kind of his objection, is these people have incredible poverty and no power. That still exists. Much of the world lives in grinding poverty to the extent that they don't know how many times they will eat in one day and how many times they'll eat in a week is a bigger mystery. This is most of the world's existence, and we live in a world where we can decide how many of the 10,000 options do I want to consume today? Do I want to drive 5 or 7 or 12 or 20 minutes? Do I want to spend $7 or 70? It's all open to me. I can do whatever I want. When we live in that kind of environment, and every case on the other side of those decisions are thousands and thousands and millions of people who have no choice whatsoever. There is, there is rice, there is water, somewhere over there that you hope is not infected. The preacher says it would be better that they were dead. It would be better if they never lived. When you live inside that kind of grinding poverty and no power to change anything, that is what that can feel like very easily. And then he introduces this discussion of the way that you work. How do you labor? And this is incredibly important to hear. What will you do with the work of your hands? Because if you, lead, if you read Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3, 1 through 4, you should be asking, what, what do we do about this? Surely the answer is like, I hope everybody dies. That can't be right. Or I hope people aren't born anymore. That can't be right. What am I supposed to do? The natural response to that question is, you work. You get to work. You do something. And so he talks about how you approach your work. And he talks about laziness, and he talks about overworking. Laziness, he says, is basically a fool eating himself. It's a fool who fills his own hands with his own stuff and destroys himself by his own laziness. And the other kind of fool is a fool that works and works and works and labors for themselves. And they get to the end of their life and they say, why have I been doing all of this? Why have I been, why have I been laboring so much? For what the preacher has already said is stuff that's going to disappear. You may find yourself being at the end of this equation and saying, you know, like earlier examples in Ecclesiastes, my kids are kind of a joke. Should I be handing them anything? <laughs> are these the people that should really be inheriting anything? Many people spend a life of labor obsessed with themselves and have no one. 
And they're left with bank accounts that are full and nice properties and, and all the kind of physical comfort and security in the world. And the question is presented to them, what was the point of that? How'd that work out for you? Answer, not well. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says, it's all blowing away in the wind. What, this, is, this is vapor coming out of your mouth on a cold morning and it's gone. So how and why are you working? Either way, whether you are, whether you are lazy or whether you are work-obsessed, if you are working entirely for yourself in blindness to the oppression of the world around you, you are part of the problem. You are feeding the problem. If you are able to li live in laziness, not you're injured and you, you need help, not you're, you're deathly sick or conditions that you don't have any control over. If you are lazy and you live for yourself and you consume resources for your own pleasure, you are part of the problem. You are producing the conditions upon which oppression feeds a hundred out of a hundred times. And you are no better if you are working entirely for yourself. The efficiency of your own production is only aimed at you. And all of the resources of your whole life are moving towards one person. How do you think that works out for all the people down the chain? How do you think that works out for your neighbor? It doesn't. Now I say this, and I say all of these things. The question then is, how do you extricate yourself from this? How do you extricate yourself from global systems of economics? Look, I, I cannot afford to pay somebody to sew all of my articles of clothing. I can't do it for myself. I have four children. If I had to pay one person to manually generate all of the clothing that we wore, my children would be naked. I'm trying to avoid that scenario. How am I supposed to go and acquire the best kind of food that's possible? I wish that I could, my, my wife would love if we could grow our own food and have our own livestock and not rely upon a food chain that is corrupted by mass labor and profit seeking. Guess what? Those four children still live with me. That is also a problem and they just need calories. I would love if I could like find somebody who has massaged the cow for three years before it became my hamburger, but my kids got to eat. What, what is left for me? What am I supposed to do? And this kind of question and this kind of feeling is exactly the feeling that Ecclesiastes is meant to provoke in you. You are supposed to be coming to the same kinds of conclusions that the preacher is. What can I do? And I do not have an answer for you. I don't know. I wish that I could tell you, look, if we just changed this economic system for this economic system, then it would be all fixed. Sorry, people have tried that forever. Not worked. 
I wish I could tell you if, you if you only buy this brand or this product, then it will work. It's not working like that. You and I are noticing a world that is so cut off from the plenty, the abundance, the fruitfulness of Eden that we are dying on the vine. We are witnessing the corruption of the world. We are witnessing the evidence of the biblical story. And there is meant to be in us the kind of angst, the kind of brokenheartedness that the preacher in Ecclesiastes displays for us. The only response that I can invite you towards is twofold. One is that we should be people who mourn. Far too often people see the fracturing, the despair, the oppression of the world. And they blame. It's probably your own fault that you live in that kind of poverty. That's how we treat our neighbors. Generally, if the people live far, far away, we can at least say we feel bad for those poor African people or South Asian people or whatever. But our neighbors, we tend to just be like, obviously they're dumb or lazy. But the weight of an entire system is pushing on those without power. And the culpability of that individual or that family, or those people, is not ours to decide. But what we can do is we can mourn. I don't know how to resolve for you where you should send your children to school. It's a tough call. I wrestle with it all the time. But what I can be sad for and mourn is that those public schools, for many families in this valley are the only reliable source of food for far too many kids. That is mournful. That is so sad. And if you want to try to fix that, if you want to try to solve that, if you want to try to create a system or or make this system better or whatever so that doesn't exist anymore, look, I'm for you. I, I bless your name. May your labors be fruitful. Work hard at it. But if you move that shell over here, it's just going to uncover another shell somewhere else. And somewhere else, somebody else is going to be suffering. And so we mourn. The language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8 is a creation is groaning and moaning. And we ought to lift our voice with it. To see the suffering of our neighbors. To lend our own voices. To not cover our eyes with our hands, with our possessions, with our devices, and see nothing of what is going on. The other thing you can do is work not for yourself. Don't be lazy and try to avoid all work. Speaking to myself here. Don't don't be obsessed with your own comfort. And don't believe that a life of labor directed directly at yourself is going to do anything different than what a life of laziness is. A life of your own pleasure. Direct 
the output of your life in others' direction. While understanding, you will not be able to heal the world. One of the most difficult things about this passage is you have to accept your humanity and say, I will not be able to heal all that grieves me. All I can do is offer what I have to the wounds of the world. And so what what lies ahead of you is a life of grief. It is a life of seeing and caring and mourning again and again the fractures and the wounds of this world. Because the only hope that I have yet seen is the hope of the God who made Eden and said, I myself will come and suffer under the oppressive thumb of every single power and principality. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes of Jesus. And what he says about Jesus and what Jesus does in the book of Ephesians is that Jesus comes to deal with the powers and principalities of this dark world that have intertangled themselves in every sort of system, method of pleasure and labor. And Jesus has come to overwhelm and overcome those powers and principalities. In Ephesians chapter 6, he makes clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. And Jesus is not unfamiliar personally with these systems and personalizations of power and principalities. He is very familiar with the dark evil of this world. He faces up and squares up to it. And first and foremost, as means of conquest, he spreads his arms and says to the powers, come do your worst to me. He does not turn away from the grief of the world, but instead enters directly into the grief, the wounds, the oppression of this world. And he says, bring, bring to me. Let me have it. Let me have it all. The full breadth of all of your destructive power. And so Jesus on the cross is strung there like the worst kind of a parent pinata and letting all of the powers and principalities spin around him and take their turn in justice, falsely wielded power, lies from the powerful and the rooting of the comforted who would desire the comfort of the immediate at the expense of their own healing. And all of these things beat and flog and crucify Jesus until he is dead. Which is the place that the powers and the principalities want to take every single person in this world, oppressor and oppressed, the result is death. And Jesus goes down to his death at their hand. And yet somehow in the darkness of that moment, is a display of his own sovereign power 
so that John and his gospel were right of this as the moment of his enthronement. The crucifixion is a demonstration of his own authority because the powers and the principalities do their worst to him. And he completely rips them apart by their own jaws. When he exits the tomb, he demonstrates that the oppressor, the forces of oppression, the powerless are not ignored, the the oppressor will not have their final say, but God himself will give justice. And God himself will not distract himself away from the wounds of this world, but will instead heal them and make right what was wronged and lost at Eden. You have no choice in the biblical story except to put your hope in Jesus. I I am not standing up here preaching Ecclesiastes 4, telling you to be better people and be more charitable and serve more. Should you do some of those things? I don't know. I don't know all of you people. Maybe, probably so. That's probably true of all of us. But if the whole point of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is, man, i got to work harder to try to eliminate the oppression, you are not the Savior of the world. You are not You don't have permission to do nothing. You don't have permission to live your life however you want, but you are not the Savior of the world. There is one hope in the Bible, and it is Jesus. And the preacher is stripping away all of the other kinds of hopes that you can have and saying, you better fix your eyes on something that's coming over the horizon, and it is Jesus And if you have put your hope in the the possessions that you have acquired in the labors of your own hands, you better lift up your eyes and pay attention. Your work is vanishing. It is going away. And it is oppressing other people as you go. If you want to be extricated from this system and the powers and principalities of this world, you better lift your eyes to the one who's enthroned above them and upon their broken backs. It is Jesus who will deliver you and only Jesus. And the more humbling thing that we must acknowledge and realize is that we are not just prisons of, prisoners of a system. We are contributors. We are voluntary participants in a life that would feed upon everybody and anybody else in order to build our own kingdom. I live to fortify and defend my power. Meager though it may be, I, by nature and by habit, will use it against anybody with less than me so that I might be exalted and my own sphere of power. So I am not even given the liberty to look at the world and say, isn't that world so bad out there? I must instead look in the mirror and say, I am a fruit of and a contributor to that world. 
I am left not just asking that Jesus would save the whole world. It is demanded of me that I acknowledge I need Jesus to save me. All of that darkness and evil is not just out there and too big for me. It is inside and flows from me. And that statement is not exempt. No one is exempt from it. The Bible will aggressively and consistently discomfort you with this news until you acknowledge the truth you can have only hope in yourself and the things that you see in this world, or you can put all of your hope in Jesus. These are your options. This way lies a world of darkness and suffering and pain, the likes of which you can only distract yourself from at best. In this way lies the healing of the world. This way lies the consumption of the poor, the destruction and corruption of all power, the usage of every sphere of authority for the abuse of someone you cannot see. In this way lies a king who is enthroned by his own humble power, who counted the powers and riches of his existence, nothing divested of himself, that he would take on the form of a servant to serve his people and was crucified and buried unto death, that he might be exalted. So that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that every hope that we ever had for the world was summed up and fixed on him. All of the longings that we sought to fulfill in this world of oppression and darkness, we only made more with our own hands. But when we saw Jesus, we were able to say, therein lies everything that we long for and more. It is in Him that Paul writes. Every spiritual blessing that you can imagine is in Him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And if you are here today, and if you lost hope, you, you have seen the, the, the disabled ignored, the power uh, leveraged against the poor, trampled upon, you've seen the starving and the thirsty, and you've said, I don't know how I can have any hope in this world. You're not far wrong. You're not far wrong. But Jesus changes everything. Put your hope in Him. And if you are here today and you have lived your whole life for your own laziness, for your own workaholism, if you've decided to aim all of the vectors of your life squarely at your own appetites and desires and distractions, the command of Jesus is very clear. Repent. Stop. Do not go that way any further. And He does not say it with a threat in His voice. It is the voice of the one who calls you to freedom. You have been enslaved. Now come home to freedom. Jesus is before you today, enthroned in the power of his right arm, crucified and resurrected. What he has accomplished, he will bring to its fullest end. We are yet the people who mourn. 
And Jesus has pronounced his blessing over us. He said, blessed are those who mourn. And we trust that in this life of turmoil and darkness, our eyes are fixed on a hope that will not fade. And one day the thumbs of hands which have been crucified, which we will forever see the marks of, will wipe away the tears from our own cheeks. And all of darkness will be dead. And in His light, we will see light forever. This is the hope of the gospel. It is the hope that is in Jesus alone. It is the hope that is before us today. Come, put your hope in Jesus and nowhere else. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, there is truly no one like you. We confess to you that we have blinded ourselves from the darkness and oppression of the world. We have intentionally distracted ourselves away from the things that ought to trouble us. We have lived for ourselves in our work and our laziness. We have sought for hope from anywhere but you. And God, we ask for your mercy. Forgive us. We have, we have trusted in princes and economic systems. We've trusted in good ideas and nonprofits. We've trusted in the distraction of our families and our products. Forgive us and have mercy. God, I pray that our hearts will be provoked and enlivened as we see the hope of the gospel this morning. God, I pray that you would discomfort us where we are far too comfortable. And God, for all of those who are weighed down by the depression of this life, who, who are seeing the things that the preacher has seen, God, I pray that you would lift our gaze to the Jesus who has triumphed over the powers and principalities, who has given us the sign of his conquest in the cross and the promise of his victory and his resurrection. Jesus, let our vision be filled with you and consumed by you. May our hearts be provoked to love you. May our lives be claimed by you. That we would direct our whole, the whole of our efforts, not for ourselves, but for you and for our neighbors. God, may our lives be claimed by this freedom. You have saved us, Lord Jesus. Would you save us until the end? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.